1: treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code summer at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code summer.
0: Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
2: Hello and welcome to the Times Opinion podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by two columnists, Danny Finkelstein and Libby Purvis and also Peter Kellner, president of the YouGov polling organisation.
0: The most lasting and impressive thing about the coalition may end up being the fact of it that it lasted and was stable at a time when the country needed stable government, but hadn't voted for one. But there was more. In particular, that it enabled cuts to be made with remarkably little social unrest. There was also less. The parties together failed to forge a political identity that enabled them to capture the centre.
3: I agree with Danny, but let me say something else. Voters are now far less keen on the idea of coalitions than they were before the last election. Then they wanted parties to work together in the national interest. But now they're unhappy with the results when that very thing happened. As a nation, we say we want politicians to put country before party. Nick Clegg did just that and in spades. And look what's happened to his ratings.
1: Excited that scientists have discovered not only Richard III's scoliosis and head wounds, but also what kind of worms he had and how much fish he ate. Some idiots now want to dig up Shakespeare and poke around his bones. Wrong and silly. An artist is not a statesman or a monarch and should be judged by the work alone. Anything else is impertinence.
2: (laughs) Well, we'll look forward to coming back to that later, but we've got to start with politics, a lot of politics. I hear there might be a general election coming. There's rumours of it. Um, Danny, but you want us first, before we look forward, to who will win the coming election... You've invited us to reflect a little bit on the coalition that we are now saying goodbye
0: to. Absolutely. I read um, yesterday, uh, to remind myself, the uh, column that I wrote on the day that the coalition took shape, on the day that David Cameron, or it's the morning after, actually, that David Cameron went into Downing Street... And I was struck by two things. First of all, um, that there was obviously a degree of nervousness, that this would be completely impossible, that it wouldn't work, that it wouldn't last. I thought it probably would last, but I had to acknowledge, and I remember doing so at the end of the piece, that it might not, in order to avoid looking stupid uh, after a short amount of time. The other thing is, I noted how much hope that i expressed about the coalition becoming a more uh, more than some of its parts that it would be um that it would become a sort of progressive force of the center that would would be a sort of organization of central reform because that's Uh,
2: actually what david cameron in his sort of early days he talked about the fact that the coalition agreement was more exciting he thought than if the tory manifesto ...had been implemented on its own, somewhat controversially in the eyes of many Tory And I think, it, I
0: think, it, and I think what Tory happened MPs. is that the coalition outperformed the sceptics, people who thought it would collapse, that it wouldn't work, it's provided stable government, and it did do that minimum necessary thing, which was quite difficult provide a government that could see through much of the economic change that they wanted to see uh, and do so with a broader base of support than the Conservatives would have been able to provide by themselves. So in that way it did uh, confound the critics but it didn't reach the biggest hopes. Uh, It hasn't created for the Conservative Party a uh, a, a sort of um, middle identity. In fact um, on the contrary people have probably sort of thought the Liberal Democrats were the party that provided all the social concern, the Conservatives, the hard economic edge, and it may have done both parties harm. Mm. Libby, do you largely agree with that assessment?
1: I I do. I mean, I was was absolutely thrilled... the coalition because it felt to me like the best thing that could possibly happen in the best of all worlds because uh, as far as the Tories were concerned, one always fears the extreme, feral, mad Tory right, you know, the whole Alan Clark tendency that doesn't like anybody but in <laughs> himself and his own interest, horrible, horrible extreme Tories uh, but I rather took to David Cameron and I believe that David Cameron was for real and that he actually cared and the coalition, you know, I think what Nick Clegg did was just extraordinary the, 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 the heroism of it because he has in some ways sacrificed his own political career uh, though not, I think, his party. I, I don't think the, the Lib Dems are dead at all. Uh, but I think he, you know, he, he, he stepped up. Uh, the play that was on um, uh, last weekend on television, James Graham's rather brilliant, I thought, play, Coalition. Mm. I'm sure bits of it were you know sort of not, not entirely accurate. But what it did was it gave people outside the Westminster bubble a real sense of it's difficult, it's tough, It's people have ideals, people worry, people fret, people care. There, and they are human beings trying to come to accommodations. The Coalition's been a wonderful example of human beings coming to a, an accommodation and I think, on the whole, pretty well.
2: Because Peter Kellner, the, the British people are sort of conflicted, aren't they? They tell pollsters such as yourself they want politicians to work together and when they do work together and compromise they complain that they haven't delivered exactly what they said they were doing their you know, individual manifestos.
3: I think actually, Tim, Uh, people complain about something slightly different, which is that when they say they like the idea of coalitions before there is one, it's a bit like, and Danny will remember this, 30-odd years ago, the early days of the Social Democratic Party when it it was leading in the polls. People were projecting... Uh, onto this hypothesis, their own idea of an ideal government or an ideal political party, mm. and the reality can, by definition, not match up to all the millions of separate ideas yeah. that voters have in in their own heads. Um, but let me say something else uh, <coughs> because it's relevant to perhaps to where we move on uh, after May the seventh, which is that one of the reasons why the coalition was successful was the numbers. Add together the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, they had a major- starting majority of just short of 80. And a good majority, And amongst other things, this meant that the small minority of Conservative backbenchers who don't particularly like David Cameron, who hate the European Union, they were marginalised. So if we have a coalition after this coming election, I think that will be very different. And I think it's a huge personal credit, to both David Cameron and Nick Clegg. Nick Clegg, because his party has manifestly suffered... And he stayed with it. But David Cameron, in terms of his own party management, there are, I think I'm right in saying, there are 18 Lib Dem MPs in the House of Commons who draw government salaries as ministers or whips. That means there are 18 Conservative MPs who are not drawing salaries who would if it was a single party government. And I guess there are at least 100 Conservative MPs who know that they're one of the 18. Um... And you should not underestimate the extent to which Tory backbenchers feel that their own careers have been hobbled by coalition, necessary though it was, vital of the arithmetic um, made it so. I think that David Cameron and Nick Clegg deserved genuine credit for how they've uh, how they managed it. What,
0: what I und- misunderstood, I think, on day one of the coalition, um, you know, it was it was a sort of mistake of analysis. Really, was that some people who voted Liberal Democrat would never be attracted mm. by the coalition. They walked off from the Liberal Democrats almost immediately and could never come back. And it was, I suppose, a bit naive of me to think that perhaps uh, those people who'd identified with the left might be attracted over to a centre-right coalition. Uh, The coalition never succeeded in persuading even any of them, really, to come back over. They left on day one and they've never come back. Um, And uh, that may prove to be actually decisive in a general election. I think that group of people who went over from the Liberal Democrats to Labour could prove decisive.
1: You think they've gone to labor. I think there's probably quite a few went to, to the Greens mm. you know I think quite quite a few sort of sort of wandered off to the ultimate mm. project your own mm. happy dreams party mm. which is the Good. Greens but, but, but I, but I, I, I want to just get
2: back a little bit to the coalition just before we um, go into the look to the future because I think you're all being a little bit rosy about the coalition if I may say so because a lot of people out there if you look at the approval ratings in your polls um, Peter people don't by almost two to one, I think, disapprove of the uh, 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 of the coalition. And th- there are things, you know, the, the central mission of this coalition was the elimination of the deficit. We still have one of the biggest deficits in, in Britain's history. One of the biggest issues for the public is immigration. Immigration hasn't been brought down to the tens of thousands. It's actually about net 300,000. There's the broken promise on tuition fees. There's a lot, actually, that the electorate have due reason to be disappointed with this coalition. But Tim,
3: we've got to separate out the public's conception of the coalition as a phenomenon and the performance, sure. economic performance. And when the public say that they don't think the government has done that well, it's about 30% who support what it's done and 60% who say it's not done well. That is um, because principally living standards are now no higher or barely higher than they were five years ago, and people don't feel their own lives have improved. And when we at YouGov look at attitudes towards the government, they think they give the government good marks for turning the economy around and for cutting the deficit, leaving aside the arguments as to the the, the objective truth about those things the public's view is they did well but on everything else the public think the government has failed so on living standards on crime on immigration on on hospitals on schools they think the 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 government's not done very well but this is a verdict on a government and i think if you'd had a single party government with with the identical social and economic performance Mm. you'd have more or less the same figures this is a verdict about government not about coalition per se
1: Um, People, I mean you pollster you you will know. Um, aren't people nearly always dissatisfied with what the government has done? In the preceding five years, I mean, sometimes they vote mm. for it again with gritted teeth and and, sh- and a shrug. Particularly a
2: period when circumstances mm. across the world uh, th- have been very and, and
1: the, the fact that the, you know the the Europe mm. the, the immigration from Europe, obviously that those were deals mm. which were signed years mm. and years ago by completely different people, and it's very very difficult mm. to get that down. So I, I think that I think public discontent is is not particularly about the, the, what the is, coalition's the, the, the done. Ge- I think it's just general I, public discontent. The government I mean, have
2: largely, done here, haven't they done very well? At things that they didn't promise, like job creation and reform of the public services and economic growth. Not so well, actually, at some of their pledges, like tuition fees, immigration, but national health a, service
0: reorganisation. Well, obviously, tuition fees is a separate case because it was a Liberal Democrat sure, promise, but, but it, not it, a Conservative. It, it's wrapped one. up into the public's yes. view of the I, coalition. I, I, I would say that, um, you know, so people will differ on whether the coalition's record is good. I think, personally, on balance, it is good, but I would say that because I supported the thrust of the policies and so therefore I'd be inclined to think the solutions were the best you could have in the circumstances but without getting into that for a moment I would say that one of the problems with coalitions is it doesn't belong to anyone so therefore everybody, if you're a Liberal Democrat or a Conservative, can say well, yes I voted Conservative uh, and we got the outcomes I, v- I voted for, um, we would have got the outcomes I voted for if they'd won, but they didn't win so they had to go in with the Liberal Democrats and they can blame it on the other party, so therefore it's not quite what they voted for in reality i think um that um, what conservatives voted for they broadly got in the circumstances that uh, were that existed which were very difficult and much more difficult than the conservative party said they were and possibly should have knew that, known in that they Libya
2: were. Peter desperate to come in. I don't know Sorry. which one to let in first, but we'll be chivalrous and let Libby in first. Oh,
1: that's she Texas,
2: <laughs> Texas just, is not chivalrous. I just, can't I just, win anymore. I just
1: want to pick up on, on Tim's thing about how they, they didn't deliver things they promised but mm. they did deliver things they didn't promise. Well, this is about life. Mm. You might have a chap who has absolutely promised to get some shelves mm. up in the kitchen and has not done so. On the other hand, he has unloaded the dishwasher. Mm. He has solved some major problems with the children. <laughs> he has he has sort of rushed off and dealt with that. he's being sexist, talking about men
2: doing their kitchen work. But
1: he's done other other things. I think you do what seems to be possible at the time, and I think it's very childish if if voters say, oh, well, they didn't do that one thing.
2: Linton Crosby's view, Peter Kellner, is that um, the voters will not think much more than the economy was in a mess five years ago, and it's pretty good now. Would you largely agree with that?
3: I agree with that. uh, As a pollster, and people still blame Labour more than the Conservatives, five years in the figures haven't shifted about who you blame normally when a government's in two or three years people stop blaming the the, the previous government mm. and that change hasn't happened but let me say
2: something happened in america either no. did it with barack obama right. and george bush but let me yeah.
3: say something as, as a citizen rather than a pollster you know the um some of the things the conservatives or the coalition promised, which haven't happened to cut immigration to tens of thousands to cut to eliminate the deficit um uh, by now um uh, to cut public spending massively. Well, I'm jolly glad as a citizen that they failed on those three things. Because had they succeeded uh, with fewer immigrants and a, and a massive deficit reduction programme and a, and a public spending programme, public spending cuts, this economy would be on the floor. Mm. It is because uh, we've still uh, had immigrants coming in into a growing economy. It's because George Osborne has turned in the last couple of years into a secret Keynesian. The economy is doing rather well, so as a citizen, I'm jolly pleased that some of these big promises have been broken.
2: Well, I'd like to come back on that, but uh, probably time is against (laughs) us. But uh, can I ask you, in terms of failures of the coalition, just briefly before we move on to look to the future, what has this coalition left in the next government's in tray that will be most pressing?
0: Well, I mean, it has yet to finish the deficit reduction. Uh And um, whether you regard that as a failure or just as a result of of the Eurozone crisis, that remains Mm -hmm. the biggest item in the intray of any incoming government. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think the NHS reforms were botched. Um, and um, it sounds like that anyway. And then the new, new government has got to choose between whether to start another round of reform uh, or to sort of live with the previous um, yeah. set of reforms. And it remains Did the you case. Say
2: that Was the biggest mistake of the coalition the yeah, NHS reforms? Yes, I, do, um, yeah. Danny, yeah. I
0: do, although yes, I do, although. Um, whether it ultimately will be the biggest one that they pay a price for electorally, or whether the NHS would always have been tricky, I don't know. Uh, whether the reforms themselves, and uh, uh, but uh, certainly electorally and politically, my strategy for the Conservatives would have been a ten-year program of massive reassurance on the National Health Service yeah. to try to overcome this deficit problem, combined with a with a with a with a policy of hypothecated tax. Pe-
2: Peter, what would you
0: have in I, the entray?
3: The I think the three things that they've, they've botched... and it not going really problems for, for Libby between
2: the two of you mentioning all these well,
3: things. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty left <laughs> for, for Libby. Um, I think they've botched Europe, and we have now heading not just for a referendum, but for a, a relationship between... Um, Britain and the rest of the European Union, which I think is profoundly unhealthy because David Cameron has, at each point in the last five years, has played a narrow tactical domestic game and I think unnecessarily alienated potential allies for reform of the EU across the continent. I think they botched Scotland the last 10 days of the referendum, Italy following our YouGov poll, which showed the no leads disappearing. Um, And I think now Scotland is a massive problem, which it needn't have been. And perhaps the other big thing in the in trays is housing. Um, a lot housing, of we, yeah. a lot of the policies have been around financing, which if everything is stoked demands. You know, with interest rates on the floor, this is the time for the governments to borrow a lot of money to invest in a lot of new housing. Um, I think they could have done that. I don't think the markets would have been frightened by that. Um, and it's left the next government to
2: do. You would definitely agree with housing, wouldn't you, Libby? That's the topic you've brought up a couple of times I, in this I podcast. I would. And, and
1: I would very much like to see a government who had, had the bottle to stop pimping out London to uh, rich foreign investors who aren't even using the properties and are just using using them as banks, often for some quite dirty money. From the other side of the world I think you know that that's been a scandal the other thing I would like to see is an absolute slit-eyed sort of hyper efficient furious concentration on sorting out government IT projects because if you look at the welfare horror stories which have come up under Ian Duncan Smith's so very very well intentioned and well thought through reforms it's nearly always been IT it's been delays it's been problems with registration the Uh, HMRC is in the process of going through some sort of giant IT convulsion that's got to be done right and they've got to stop being conned by these gigantic big firms and and, and sort of sit sit down and have some Mm. people with proper IT savvy to look at these systems because government IT when it works is brilliant look at car tax but so much of it does not work and is disastrous
2: I think Francis Maud would say that probably progress has been made in this Parliament. And I should say to all Time subscribers who are listening, if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, I'll link to a piece by Rachel Sylvester, one of our columnists um, on the issue of government IT and also some other background pieces. But um, briefly, before we look at um, Libby's um, topic, uh, Peter Kellner, um, give us the state of the race. Are the opinion polls any clearer than they have been? Tim,
3: at the time of recording this podcast, because if people are listening to it towards the end of the week, yeah. it may be different, <laughs> especially after Thursday night's debates. Um, it, it's neck and neck, and it's been essentially neck and neck between the Conservatives and Labour uh, for nearly six months now, since yeah. after the party conferences uh, last uh, September. Um and you get slight movements. There was a slight drift to the Conservatives a few weeks ago. That does seem to be a very short-lived spike in Labour support after uh, last Thursday's uh, initial confrontation with, with Jeremy Paxman. Um, but the way it looks, this deadlock has yet to be broken. My guess is that if history is anything to go by, and, and like those unit trust ads, you know, the past, the future doesn't necessarily resemble the past. I would expect the Conservatives to drift up a point or two during the course of the campaign, Labour to drift down a point or two. Therefore, the Conservatives to be the largest party. But, of course, um, events in the campaign may change that. If Ed Miliband has another stonking TV performance, uh, that may start to change people's views on whether they're to trust... I'm not entirely
2: convinced last week's was stonking, as some people make out, but OK. Yeah. But, but, uh, but what no, I'm saying is TV one. debates no. are
3: the kind of events yeah. that, that, start to, that could cause voters to start reappraising their views of the party leaders, because clearly one of Labour's, or perhaps the biggest problem Labour has, is that people don't see Ed Miliband as a potential Prime Minister, just as the Tories' biggest problem is that people mm. see them as a party of the rich and the Tofts and, 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 and so, if either party can shift perceptions on their big negatives, it could play out differently. Um, but with the role of the UKIPs, the Greens, the SNP, the Lib Dems, both in their own the seats they are challenging for, and in the capacity to act as a spoiler vote, in seats where they're going to come third or fourth, this is the most unpredictable election that I can recall. Yeah.
2: And of course, even if the Tories end up as the largest party, that doesn't mean that David Cameron s- stays in Number 10. If the SNP win more seats than the Liberal Democrats, that could put Ed Miliband in pole position. I-
3: Theoretically, you're right. My own personal guess, and this is where you get down to the sort of raw politics, is that if if there's a gap of if the Tories are ahead of Labour by maybe five seats, uh, so so a single figure seats, then there's a real possibility that Miliband could emerge as Prime Minister. Once you get towards a Conservative lead of twenty or twenty-five seats, then even if theoretically and arithmetically Labour plus the SNB can outvote the Tories, I think in reality David Cameron will be able to stay on perhaps precariously, perhaps losing a number of votes in the Commons, but I don't see Ed Miliband becoming Prime Minister if the gap is 20 seats or more.
2: Um, You were quite amusing on Newsnight um, on Monday night. Danny, you were locked in a little bit of debate with Alistair Campbell and you kind of hinted that you didn't think it was necessary Labour's most sensible strategy to put Ed Miliband out there well, knew, front and centre. Give us a little yeah, bit more well, of I what knew, was behind that, that remark. I knew yeah. that
0: Alistair had supported David Miliband in the leadership election and he can't possibly think that uh, Ed Mil- Miliband has turned into to a sort of combination of Martin Luther King and Demosthenes <laughs> overnight uh, and yet he was giving that impression. So I was just gently uh, suggesting to him that if he was now... Uh, suggesting Labour reorientate their campaign around Ed Miliband surprising voters. I don't think that's a very good strategy. It's a possibility that that political narrative could emerge because people have to do something. There are lots of political narratives that could emerge. One uh, unexpected one could be Nick Clegg um, uh, suddenly reemerging with people saying, actually, maybe people have been a bit unfair on him. Although I suspect that if he did that, that would endanger Tory Liberal Democrat marginals rather than... Um, rather than uh, Labour lib-dead marginals.
2: Libby Pervers, are you enjoying this election?
1: I, I'm sort of starting to, but can, oh, I, can I make yes. my one wild card prediction, yes, please? Because please I was absolutely banged. We'll bang hold correct. you to it.
2: Be, be, be warned. Um,
1: bang correct. Yeah. Down, I was right about the um, Scottish referendum, mm-hmm. uh, down to the percentage. Okay. Uh, you know, ab- absolutely. Did you bet money on it? I predict I did. I oh. won a Scottish fiver. Uh, oh. He hasn't paid me yet, but uh, <laughs> there you go. That's because he's English. Uh, I don't think there is going to be this great Scottish SNP landslide of Labour wiped out completely and SNP, I just don't think that's going to happen.
2: When you say labour won't be wiped out completely, what do you think they'll in have? Scotland? I mean, uh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But what are you talking? They'll win 10 seats, 20 seats, 30 seats. I can't, seats?
1: I can't do the figures, but I just, I think, I keep reading about how, you know, this is, this is, this is going to be, it's going to be enormous, it's going to have an enormous effect on Parliament. I just do not believe that is going to happen. And the other thing is, you I was, really
2: are undermining Peter Kellner's authority here because well, every opinion poll people, that, that all the pollsters are producing says that's exactly lied. what's going P- to happen. A
1: lot of Scottish voters clearly lied to the pollsters during the referendum no,
0: campaign I I used to not think <laughs> that Libby well, I used to agree with you um, but I've changed <laughs> my mind and what's changed my mind is just more and more of a qualitative opinion seems to be backing I think it's a bit like the conservatives in 97 with the campaign I worked on for John Major and there was nothing we could do nothing we could say that would shift people and it isn't like voting for independence it doesn't have the same consequences so I think I think actually I think the SNP will get this this large wedge. Can I, can
3: I just say, can I de- defend not just youGov but the pollsters generally in Scotland, in that all the pollsters the day or two before the sort of all the polls that came out on the morning of the referendum had uh, no winning, and it was on either on fifty two or fifty three percent with the yes on forty seven or forty eight. We at youGov on the day. Went back <coughs> to people we polled earlier in the week and we found a clear on the day shift from yes to no. And on the night of the referendum, before a single vote had been counted, there were no exit polls. I went on the television and said, We think no have won by 54 to 46 percent. And, and the that, result yeah. was 55 to 45. Mm. To be within one percent, um, had people been lying to us, we would not have been that close. I made my bet
1: three weeks before that.
3: Yes, but that's <laughs> the simple. But you're saying people <laughs> lied to the pulses. When people lied to on, the pulses, you f- were, f- we're f- far further out. Mm. Um, uh,
2: uh, Libby, the reason I asked you the question whether you were enjoying this campaign, because we had a little discussion before the podcast, and you implied that you weren't at the most inspired level you've ever been at. Um.
1: I'm not, but I, I, I'm, I'm very, very interested. I think the business of this fragmentation of of the Greens and UKIP and the mm. SNP and so on is is going to be very, very interesting. Nigel Farage said the other day in that, uh, in that way he has. Yes, of course UKIP's not going to win this election. That's because nobody's going to win this election. I thought that was rather a good line. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, let's move on to our final topic and leave politics behind for this podcast. We will be returning to it, I think, just possibly over the next few weeks. Libby, Richard the Third, and Shakespeare. What, 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 what are you worried about?
1: Well, there's been this absolutely extraordinary, brilliant scientific breakthrough over recent years and how much you can tell from bones. They dug up Richard III fine. He was under a car park in Leicester. That's that's not an absolutely correct place, a monarch's <laughs> resting place. Um, and they found out extraordinary numbers of things. They found out not just the scoliosis and the head wounds but what kind of worms he had Uh, he definitely had roundworm but he didn't have tapeworm and how much fish he ate and a whole lot of fascinating things about him and he was a monarch and fair enough and he was being reburied he had to be taken up and reburied anyway but now there's this move to get Shakespeare's bones up from under that church in Stratford and um, and check out everything about him and, you know, did he have VD and, you know, possibly, you know, what did he eat and did he have worms and maybe he died of something different and did he take cocaine? They can tell this stuff from bones. And some scholars are absolutely overexcited about this think, oh, we must do this, we must do this. And I hate this. I think an artist has a right to be judged on their work, on what that work says to you. Shakespeare says still an enormous amount to us. But you get this in all literature and in all drama, you get people... Gossiping, wanting to know everything about the life. Biographies are fine, they're mm. interesting, but they are basically gossip. The best they can ever give you as an extra to the work is a bit of compassion for the circumstances under which the poor wrote Why don't we have
2: some it. bone analysis? They can tell us a little bit more, take us closer to the truth, then, but, but rather not, than to what the gossip. Is the
1: truth? The truth is in the artwork. I mean, I, I, I go to the theatre a lot, I write about theatre a lot, and I find myself always wholly uninterested in in which playwright is married to who and which actor is married to who. I don't care. It is what it does for you as a piece of art at the time. And I think this grubbing around in Shakespeare's grave will teach us nothing about what he said, what truths he spoke, what impact he can have on us still today and does regularly. Um, I, I think it's it's kind of a, a pointless, grubby schoolboy desecration. I think it's but disgusting. But, but, but,
3: um, Nobody's stopping you judging people, Shakespeare or anybody else, or today's actors and actresses, entirely on their public work. You, know, you, you are free to write whatever you want, um, at saying whether Shakespeare took cocaine is irrelevant. What right have you to stop other people who perhaps have a different view from gathering the raw information to allow them to make a, a, a different judgment?
1: It's a grave what? in which a living mm. man was buried...
0: I would say, um, I, 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 was a slightly odd confession, that I, I on my iPod I organised all of the Beatles songs in the order in which they were recorded, and um, then I listened to them from the beginning in order to be able to see whether I could make some judgments. And I, it turned out that when the Beatles recorded "I'm a Loser," a song that I'd never previously enjoyed very much, um, that was a change, and you could tell it from listening to the to the songs in the right order. Uh, when I then went back to find out about the songs, I found that "I'm a Loser" happened just after. The Beatles met Bob Dylan and started using marijuana, in other words, the use of marijuana had made us a, a change which was understandable, interesting, and clear, and led to my greater comprehension of much of the work that took place after Beatles for sale. I use that um, example partly because I'm more comfortable Shall with we it, do it than I am up? talking uh, <laughs> I am more comfortable than talking about um, Shakespeare, but I, I don't agree with the school of thought on art that says um, the artwork stands for itself. We have nothing to learn from biography. I think it's uh, the work that David Cesarani, for example, did about Arthur Kerstler and his attitude towards women uh, was absolutely critical. Uh, I'm trying to understand George Orwell through reading, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens and his uh, critique of Orwell's life uh, through reading biography. All those things add hugely to one's understanding. And so, you know, my view is... A little bit, maybe this is sacrilegious. When someone is dead they're dead and um, he's been dead a long time. I don't think anybody's going to be offended by um, you know who, who has a sort of stake in Shakespeare in terms of being a relative or something by doing this, and we could learn a huge amount.
1: Uh, but what what exactly do you think that we would learn that he maybe took cocaine?
0: Well, that would be fascinating.
1: In in what way would that be fascinating? Well,
0: would, we might learn all sorts of things about the type of work he did and the influences he was so, so under. when he did. The greatest playwrights in British history
2: was somehow using drugs? So would no, that Noel Gallagher, be to use another
0: low rent example, always said that it, it was a good thing that he used cocaine rather than marijuana because all the people he knew who used marijuana were asleep in their bedrooms in Manchester. And um, where where he, are
1: you going to draw the line? I want to know where you're going to draw the line, Danny, as to when we can go into graves and uh, fossick around in people's bones to. Find out things which they to Well, maybe I wasn't didn't proposing a
0: general know. Shakespeare seemed fine to me. And um, the, the, so if you're saying this, They're the not, thin George end of the Harrison. wedge, I'm against the thick end. Um, <laughs> you know, the. the, the uh, I, I was. I. I can understand when there are living relatives who might object to it but what I suggest we do is we put a little article in the newspaper asking any of Shakespeare's living relatives to come forward <laughs> if they've got an objection and if, n- and if none of them pop up um, his cousin for example um, then uh, we'll, yeah, we should but, go ahead but lots will pop up, the trouble is probably none of them will be genuine <laughs> well, uh, well we could okay. use Shakespeare's DNA to find out
2: <laughs> Well thank you uh, Danny Peter, Libby very much for a fascinating conversation and uh, Libby mentioned there uh, her uh, theatre review And if you are interested in seeing her theatre reviews, do go to her personal website, which is theatrecat.com, I think. Is that right, Libby? yes. And uh, thank you uh, also to you for listening. Do visit the uh, Comment Central blog for more background reading on the topics we've been discussing. And I must also thank Charlie Jones, who is standing in for Dave Maguire at the moment as my producer. Until next week, goodbye.